BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. So there's this fascinating story over at The Nation right now, thenation.com, of course, that website by Sonia Shaw. It's titled, It's Time to Tell a New Story About Coronavirus. Our Lives Depend on It. The subtitle, The Way We Talk About Contagion Matters. It shapes how societies respond and whether many of us will survive. I should add, you are a science journalist. You're the author of the book Pandemic, Tracking Contagion from Cholera to Ebola and Beyond. Your fifth book just out in June, The Next Great Migration, Beauty and Terror of Life on the Move. And, of course, this piece here, uh, your website, Sonia Shah, S-O-N-I-A-S-H-A-H.com. story has always fascinated me. I wrote a book, The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight, basically about our relationship to nature is like one of our most destructive stories. What is the story we're telling ourselves about coronavirus right now, and what are we getting wrong? Well, I think since pretty much the advent of germ theory, we've basically thought of contagious diseases as the work of invasive germs that kind of encroach upon passive and unsuspecting populations. If that's our story, that's sort of our paradigm and our narrative about how we understand infectious diseases, and that shapes our response, which is then to either try to repel those microbes from moving. If it's in people, we say close the borders, keep them out. We can scapegoat certain populations of being the ones who are carrying it, and we try to exclude them. And then the other part of it is we try to come up with killing chemicals to kind of surgically target and destroy these invasive kind of foreign-seeming external germs. So it's kind of this paradigm of what I call microbial xenophobia. It's this idea that all these diseases caused by pathogens is like the whole issue is the pathogen itself that needs to be isolated and surgically targeted, usually with biomedical commodities. What we're missing in all of that is... Well, there's certain inconvenient facts, of course, right? Like sometimes you have a pathogen around you and you don't actually get sick. Sometimes a person will get exposed to the pathogen and they will get very sick and a person next to them will get exposed to the same level and won't get sick at all. So obviously the the whole issue is a lot more complex than whether the pathogen is present or not. It has to do with our immunity, our exposure, how we're interacting with each other, all, all these broader things. And that's what gets obscured. So when we just focus on the pathogen and the invasiveness of it, what we miss is all the social and political environmental drivers, which ultimately might be more important in, in all controlling the diseases once they emerge and also preventing them from erupting in the first place. So you've got these two pieces, controlling them before they emerge and dealing with the eruptions. You point out in your article that so many of our diseases are actually uh, zoonotic diseases. They, they're diseases that we got from animals. And you know certainly COVID-19 is one of those. Came out of bats via perhaps another species. MERS uh, via camels, probably also originated with bats. SARS, civet cats, I think it was. So what, you know, so I get that, you know, like, okay, we, if we stop destroying natural habitats where there may be reservoirs of infections that have not previously infected the human race, we uh, diminish the chance that we're going to come up against something like COVID-19 to which we have no natural immunity. But that kind of throws us back into germ theory, but in an environmental context anyway, am I, am I getting this or is there a piece here I'm missing? Yeah, I think that's right. But I think if you look at sort of the broader picture, 
we see that since 1940, we've had hundreds of these pathogens either newly emerge or re-emergence in new places where they've never been seen before. So this one is just the latest in a long line of pathogens that have been kind of traveling along this pathway. And about 60% of them come from the bodies of animals, like you said. 70% are from bodies of wild animals. And on a broad scale, what's happening is that people are invading wildlife habitat, and that destroys a lot of wildlife, of course. It's why we have this huge biodiversity crisis where we're losing 150 species every day. But the creatures that remain have to cram into smaller and smaller fragments of habitat that we leave behind for them, which means they're in more intimate contact with us. And like any living thing on the planet, you know, when microbes find a new habitat to exploit, they do that. And they, you know, they use that new area. And so that's what's happening is we are driving animals closer towards us. And that allows the microbes that live harmlessly inside of their bodies to start exploring ours. And in the beginning, that first confrontation is very violent. We don't have any immunity to these things. So that's why so many of us are getting sick from these novel pathogens. But the bigger picture is this is about our interactions with each other and with nature and the landscape. So how do we begin changing our stories in our culture? I mean, they're endemic, they're embedded, they're in the Bible. I mean, there are assumptions of governance. There are those, you know, Dan Quinn and others who suggest that this all goes back to agriculture when we thought we could rise up and control nature, that that's why God condemned Cain and blessed Abel, because Cain was the farmer, you know, and oh, you know, you're cursed. Is it that simple? I think we've had different paradigms about how to understand contagious diseases. If you go back far enough, and we, Hippocrates said it was all about miasmas and these smelly airs and gases and clouds that, you know, if you breathe them in, that that's what would make you sick. And that was our understanding of contagious diseases for thousands of years. When we were living through malaria and tuberculosis and cholera pandemics, that's how we thought that those things were making us sick. And we had a major shift with germ theory, which was in the 19th century. And I think we are coming to the point, and and germ theory really was about, let's reduce this complicated infectious disease process that involves like all these different factors into just a host, a germ, and an incursion, and that's it. And then we can just kind of surgically focus on this like microscopic kind of interaction, hyper-reductionist. And, you know, that works fine. Like that worked well for diseases we had already basically controlled, right? We had already basically controlled malaria, TB, cholera, a lot of the diseases that were hugely burdensome on Western societies had mostly been controlled by then thanks to social reforms, you know, because we had better housing, we had better infrastructure, we had better sanitation, hygiene, all of that. And that was done through a lot of hard work of activists, you know, trying to change society, and they did. And so germ theory works insofar as when we don't have a huge amount of disease around, we can use drugs, antibiotics, vaccines. All of those things really help control diseases that we already kind of knew about and had reduced transmission opportunities for them already. But now what we see with new diseases, you know, when we have an Ebola outbreak, when we have a Zika out of nowhere, when we have new Lyme, you know, new tick-borne diseases like Lyme and others, we can't produce antibiotics and medicines and vaccines fast enough to protect us from that first wave of disease when they first come into human populations, which, as we're seeing right now, is the most sort of destructive one. What's step one? I think we need to start telling a new story. I think we need to start understanding how our health is not just about the absence of a certain pathogen, but it's connected to the health of other populations, of our wildlife, of our ecosystems more generally. Brilliant. Brilliant. Sonia Shaw, her piece is the latest cover story in Nation Magazine. It's time to tell a new story about coronavirus. Check out our books, Pandemic and The Next Great Migration. Sonia, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you. So this is from the Wall Street Journal, Rupert Murdoch's you know, right-wing business publication, a newspaper that had a storied past until Rupert Murdoch bought it. But here, this is just, you know, this is, it's by uh, Sumathi Reddy. Chelsea Alanair, a 37-year-old in Kaiser, Oregon, is going on more than 100 days of being sick with racing heartbeat, chest pains, and numbness. Emily Jensen, A 34-year-old surfer and runner in Minneapolis says she now needs an inhaler just to walk up the stairs. 
And Annie Harris, a 22-year-old recent college graduate, is struggling with extreme fatigue and headaches in Sandwich, Connecticut. All three women tested positive for COVID-19 roughly three months ago, yet they are all still experiencing the symptoms or after effects of the disease. They're part of a group of long-term patients that doctors are increasingly studying in an effort to understand this thing. The science is very nascent. Some doctors believe the culprit is a neurological condition that may affect up to 15% of all COVID-19 patients. Other doctors say this is triggering chronic fatigue syndrome. Many see a common root in immune responses gone haywired, many researchers and physicians. At the Mount Sinai Health Center in New York City, they are monitoring roughly 1,000 COVID-19 patients with initially mild to moderate cases whose symptoms have lasted on average 50 to 70 days. Now we don't know how much longer they're gonna last because we've only had this disease for 50 to 70 days. This is called dysautonomia. Dis as in off, as you know, broken, as not working. Dysautonomia, and it's about the autonomic nervous system. When the autonomic nervous system is out of balance, this is what controls temperature, blood pressure, heart rate. And when it goes haywire, you get racing heart rate, extreme fatigue, shortness of breath. Dr. Petrino estimates dysautonomia may affect as many as 5 to 15% of all COVID-19 patients. So out of that 100 airplanes that fall out of the sky every day where everybody dies, that's 1%. You'd have 500 to 1,500 airplanes falling out of the sky every day where people have dysautonomia, where for the rest of their lives, their heart races, they're extremely fatigued, they're short of breath, their temperature goes nuts. Dr. Petrino has surveyed about 600 people. The median age is 42 years old. 80% were women. That's interesting. And these are all people where the disease has lingered more than four weeks. Other possible explanations for the long-haul cases include a condition called myalgic encephalomitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME slash CFS. Those symptoms include mental fog, exercise intolerance, and fatigue for at least six months. Ron Davis, a professor of biochemistry and genetics at Stanford University Medical Center, is uh, looking into this. He says studies have found up to 10% of people with some viruses can develop this condition. And this virus is doing a very good job of it, apparently. It's causing damage to the nerves. The immune response is going haywire. People are experiencing cognitive issues, may have more serious brain injury. Aiko Ayasaki, a professor of immunobiology at Yale, believes that there are three potential explanations. First, patients have a dormant reservoir of virus in the body that gets reactivated. Secondly, traces of virus in the tissue, even if the virus is dead, those traces, fragments of virus bodies, are triggering inflammatory symptoms. Or number three, the immune response goes into overdrive and mistakenly starts attacking the body's own cells. This, by the way, is what happens with diabetes type 1, right, when the pancreas gets attacked, which is apparently, increasingly, they believe it's caused by a viral infection in childhood. And, you know, it continues from there. Meanwhile, Anders Tegnell, the economist in Sweden who came up with Sweden's policy that has been quoted by uh, and praised by Tucker Carlson and Newt Gingrich, the so-called Swedish model. For the first couple of months, it looked good. Hey, life is good in Sweden. They're not wearing masks. They're not doing anything. Well, <laughs> now, not only is the Swedish economy crashing, but Sweden has a fatality rate 12 times higher than Denmark, Finland, or Norway, their three neighbors. And they've gotten nothing economically for this. Jacob Kiergaard, senior fellow at the Peterson Institute, says they have literally gained nothing. It's a self-inflicted wound, and they have no economic gains. And then another scientist, a fellow by the name of Goodman, says Sweden's experiment is relevant to what's happening now in the U.S., where Donald Trump and his Republican collaborators have constantly framed the issues of one of economy versus safety. Yeah, well, Sweden has shown <laughs> this isn't how it works. You will recall, what was it, two weeks ago? 
Trump did his thing in Tulsa, Oklahoma? As I recall, I'm terrible with time. I can never, the difference, when I look back at the past, and I, was that two weeks ago or was that a month and a half ago? I, more than half the time, I can't tell the difference. And I've just been that way my whole life. I think some people are like really smart with some things and really stupid with others, and I'm really stupid with time. But in any case, whenever he was in Oklahoma in Tulsa doing his, uh, his little uh, 6,000 person rally in a 9,000 person arena, the governor of Oklahoma, Kevin Stitt, was there. S-T-I-T-T, the Republican governor. He was there in the crowd. He wasn't wearing a mask. It was reported that Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt confirms that he has now tested positive for COVID-19. It's happening. They've already confirmed that a lot of these, a lot of these cases in Oklahoma, specifically in Tulsa area particularly, can be traced right back to Donald Trump's gig. So here we are. Jonathan, Warwick, Massachusetts. Hey, Jonathan, what's up? Yeah, I just wanted to bring up a little bit about the origins of the COVID, where it came from. But I'm suspicious of the laboratory at Wuhan. Jonathan, I'm going to stop the, the whole conspiracy rant right there. And don't bother calling again with it. We know from the DNA of this thing that it lived for many, many years, maybe hundreds or thousands of years in bats. And, you know, whether it transmitted through a pangolin into people or what, you know, we're, we're not sure. There's some theories about that. But frankly, I don't give a damn. I mean, the, the reality is this virus is here and Donald Trump is completely blowing it. And 130,000 plus people are dead. And I get it. Republicans want to talk about China. They want to talk about, you know, the origins of the virus and all this other BS And I wish I could say that word on the air because it's just not even strong enough. But I'm just not interested in listening to that crap. I just wanted to mention briefly, and then I'll pick up your phone calls here, Ivanka's new plan. I touched on this very quickly, but this is apparently the best they can do. This is from findsomethingnew.org, Ivanka Trump's new website, and how they got Tim Apple on this. I don't know. But jobs are changing and the pandemic has accelerated the pace. Whether you're entering the workforce for the first time or need to pivot and retrain, skills-based education can put you on a fast track to an in-demand career. Explore your options to find something new. Right. Mia Bridgeford became a helicopter mechanic through the DOL partnership. Uh, job rising careers, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. There's need for broadcast and sound engineering technicians, aerospace engineers, computer support specialists, contact tracers. Contact tracers, I'm believing. The rest of them, mm, not so much. Registered nurse, yes, let's throw you right into the middle of a COVID. This is just friggin' nuts. It is absolutely friggin' nuts. The uh, lack of guidance from Washington, D.C. is mind-boggling. We have school districts around the country that are making absolutely stupid decisions based on politics. In Los Angeles, the Los Angeles Unified School District and San Diego, between the two of them, over 800,000 students, they have said this fall we're not going to have in-person classes. We just don't know enough yet. I mean, this is a brand new virus. We're just, we're just figuring the thing out. We're just getting a sense of what it is, how it works, how, what it does, what the lasting effects are, how contagious it is. We need a little more information. We can, we can wait a little while. We don't have to kill people. And, and in fact, there's a, you know, a, a really good study that was just published. Uh, Mark Sumner is summarizing this over at uh, Daily Kos. Two studies. One was published in Nature last month. The other was published this last week in Social Science Research Network. And both of them said that the stay-at-home orders from March saved somewhere between 900,000 and 2.7 million American lives. If 75% of our population gets this virus and it's got a 4% fatality rate, which is about where it is generally, that's 9.8 million dead Americans. Turns out the cure is not worse than the disease. You know, Trump said, oh, the cure is worse than the disease. The cure being locking down. No, no, it's not. So here you have 
two school districts that are basically run by Dem. Well, actually, I don't know. San Diego. San Diego is a very red town. It may be run by Republicans. But San Diego and Los Angeles said, no, we're not going to bring kids into classrooms and teachers into classrooms. But Orange County, Orange County is like, you know, the reddest part of the reddest part of California. Orange County is famous for being Republican. They have over 25,000 confirmed COVID cases in Orange County. That's more than uh, 19 states in the United States. That's more than all of Japan. That's twice the number of South Korea. And Monday night, the Orange County Board of Education met to decide whether they were going to bring back kids and teachers and things. The Board of Education is mostly Republicans, and by a four-to-one vote, they said, yep, we're going to put those kids in with the teachers, and we're just going to see what happens. Are we going to appropriate money for masks or mandate masks? No. Are we going to appropriate money for social distancing to you know, open up our classrooms or, or change the uh, HVAC systems in our schools so the entire school doesn't end up a giant Petri dish? No. We're just going to do what Trump said. We're just going to open the schools. We're good Republicans. I mean, this is nuts. And this, this myth that uh, children can't get COVID-19 is, is, is a myth. It's a lie. Not only do they get it, they, they die from it. And those who don't die from it get injured by it and probably injured for life. They, they're getting little mini strokes and things. But, you know, Trump is still saying, oh, no, 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 we've got to. See, this is, this is the problem when we have no leadership, nothing from the top down. And I, I really think that the schools, this is the Waterloo. It's, it's been, what, 20 days now since it was reported that uh, Russia was paying bounties on U.S. troops. Donald Trump hasn't mentioned that once. He's mentioned Confederate statues a lot, but he hasn't mentioned that once. And a lot of Americans are just kind of, particularly Republicans, they're just kind of shrugging their shoulders and saying, ah, you know, yeah, I don't have anybody in my family in the military, so it's not a big deal. And it's kind of died in the media. And if he's going after protesters and, they, and they've, you've got a half a dozen or so people who have lost their eyes because these, uh, these police are, are shooting, you know, all the guidelines say if you're going to shoot rubber bullets, shoot below the waist or, or shoot, you know, lower in the body, mostly the legs, you know, to slow people down, but not to kill them or hurt them. Uh, you hit them in the neck, you can kill them. You hit them in the face, you can take out an eye. Well, that's happened over and over and over again. Well, you know, that's just the protesters. But now you're coming after kids. Now Trump wants to set up a situation that could kill your children. And there are Republicans all over this country, particularly white suburban women. I mean, everybody else had pretty much figured this out, right? But white suburban women are going, oh, yeah, like Scooby-Doo. What? Really? You want my kid to go to school, get COVID, bring it home and give it to me? Is that your plan? Just so that you can say that you beat the virus somehow, magically? I think this is going to be Trump's Waterloo. But, you know, he's got plan B. And that is, instead of having hospitals send information to the Centers for Disease Control, he's going to have hospitals send information about, you know, who's dying of what. To Alex Azar, the former Lilly executive, the former pharmaceutical executive who doubled the price of insulin, he runs HHS. Alex Azar, a good Trumpy. He's a good Trump humper. He'll do good by these numbers. And Trump wants the National Guard to go get the information. You're listening to the Tom Hartman program. Yeah, nothing makes hospital administrators feel warm and fuzzy like guys with rifles showing up to get data. So uh, Kristen Urquiza, I'm assuming is how it's pronounced, U-R-Q-U-I-Z-A. Her father, Mark, was being very, very careful about the coronavirus. Now, he works in manufacturing, and the particular company he works for was deemed by, I'm not sure if it was Trump or Governor Doug Ducey of uh, Arizona, but was de- deemed a, um, an essential business, and so he had to go to work. But he was still very, very careful at work. And then Arizona opened back up. 
And Governor Ducey came out and said, it's all good. Everything is good. Yeah, go to the bars, go to the restaurants. And she begged her dad, don't go out, don't go out. And he was like, well, the president says it's okay. The governor says it's okay. It says it on the news. They're not going to lie to me. And so he goes out to a restaurant and he gets COVID and he dies. So in her obituary, she takes on Governor Ducey, basically saying, that her father, like so many others, should not have died from COVID-19. Then she sends uh, Doug Ducey a letter, Governor Ducey a letter, saying that her dad, quote, contracted the virus during the period when you forbade local governments from implementing their own safety measures, such as wearing, such as mandating the wearing of masks. Yes, this is true. Governor Doug Ducey of Arizona, just like Governor Greg Abbott of Texas, just like the governors of a half a dozen Republican states, actually issued an executive order saying that towns and counties may not require the wearing of masks. Let that sink in. Governor Doug Ducey issued an order forbidding towns and counties from mandating the wearing of masks. Greg Abbott did the same thing in Texas. And now people are dying and dead. She sent a letter to Governor Ducey saying, um, I can attest that poor policy and terrible leadership were responsible for my father's death. She invited Governor Ducey to her father's funeral. In an interview with NPR, she said, I was one of the first people to publicly come out and point the finger, if you will, at the right individuals who are responsible for this. Although she says the governor, Governor Ducey, has not said whether or not he will be showing up at her father's funeral. It's amazing. You know, back to this Twitter thread that I was telling you about that Cleavon Gilman started. Ben Lutterer was a healthy baseball coach, 30 years old, who died from COVID a few days after developing symptoms in New Jersey. Dan Spano was a healthy personal trainer killed by COVID-19. He was 30 years old. He struggled to get the words out, saying he couldn't breathe. His father called an ambulance. We had to say goodbye to him through an iPad. Trevor Sisyphus Lee was a student at Utah Valley University. He was 27 years old. He died from COVID. Trevor loved life and making people happy. He was a friend to everyone he met. Dulcie Garcia, dead at the age of 29, worked as an interpreter for the UNC Medical Center in Chapel Hill died of COVID. Keith Taylor, 33, working at the Waffle House in Alabama, died of COVID. Taylor's mother said it happened so quickly, he died 10 days after his symptoms showed up. Alexandra Nicole Farber died suddenly from COVID at the age of 27. She worked as a nurse in Atlanta, Georgia, on the front lines. Blanca Ramirez Gonzalez, age 23, died from COVID in South Dakota. She had been making beef jerky at Jack's Link's Her three kids are four, two, and one, and they'll never see their mother again. Livette Plan was an ICU nurse in Orange County Regional Medical Center in New York. She died in her 20s. 24-year-old Lamisha Polk died from COVID yesterday. This pain is on you, Governor Kemp. That's from July 10th. 29-year-old pregnant Allie Guidry died from COVID at Women's Hospital in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Doctors delivered the baby while performing CPR, and then she died. Shauna Johnson, 30, Navy vet, former Navajo Nation nurse and mother of three, died from COVID in Tucson, Arizona. Dead at 24, Ben Hirschman died of COVID, called his doctor multiple times, unable to get testing. Days later, his father tested positive for COVID. 42-year-old Belicio Lopez died from COVID days after developing shortness of breath. 24-year-old Devon Hill died from COVID in Florida. His father, a state trooper, was a non-believer until he got sick. 26-year-old Valentina Rose Surik died from COVID. As a certified nurse, she cared for her co-workers and patients, providing care in Wisconsin. 27-year-old Tevin Gross died from COVID in Arkansas past Texas. 30-year-old Andrea Circle Bear, eight and a half months pregnant, died of COVID in Texas. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. 
28-year-old Robert Anthony Young died of COVID in Phoenix, Arizona. His face turned purple, his lips turned blue. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Lewis in Branson, Missouri. Hey, Lewis, what's up? If you follow the money, how many people are dying in, that they don't have to pay veterans funds, Medicare, Medicaid, old people in hospitals dying, black and Hispanics dying at a bigger pace? They want to send these kids to school to get infected, to come back into their homes to kill the Democratic Party. They're doing it and they're Lewis, going to you're echoing my effect. Stephen Miller eugenics theory. Keep in mind, the first week that Trump was in power was when Stephen Miller started or these guys started this whole thing of let's separate children from their families and put these children in cages in prisons. If he's that into racism and eugenics, why would he not be into the model that you're talking about? And this goes back to my April 6th thing. On April 6th, it was announced to the United States and the world that disproportionately black and brown people and old people were dying. And all of a sudden, the entire Republican Party changed from, oh, my God, we've got a virus to, oh, boy, we've got to reopen. And I think exactly. I think you've, you've nailed it. I think that this is this is eugenics. This is the Tuskegee experiment all over again. There you go. Yeah. Just follow the money. Find out how much yeah. money they're so they got to pay for the trillions of dollars that they've stolen. So, yeah, yeah. So in this way, they, they're cutting, they're cutting social security expenses. They're cutting Medicaid expenses that are used for know. long-term nursing care. Uh, they're, you know, they're 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 they're, uh, they're reducing the total population of black and brown people relative to white people in this country. I mean, it's just, there you go. It, yeah, it doesn't. It, it, this is not rocket science. Lewis, thank you. Uh, well said. Forty-five minutes past the. I, I realize it's like it's. You almost think this has got to be some sort of weird conspiracy theory and Harbin's got to be way out there. Well, please tell me how I'm wrong on this. I mean, Stephen Miller and Donald Trump and Kristen Nielsen, they've already had a bunch of kids die in these children's cages that they've got. And coronavirus is ripping through those now, too. MJ in Seattle. Hey, MJ, what's up? If you want to see something astonishing, search on your computer, young people, COVID party, it's 10 pages mm -hmm. worth of people dying and saying, I made a mistake. And they know that they got it from a party. Yeah. In the short scan that I did, most of them are in Texas. In this a lot in Florida, is, too. Oh, it's a thing there now. So disturbed that it's hard to focus. 
I mean, that's one of the problems. This business of sending troops out, I have a young person in my family, very dear to me, that is demonstrating in Utah. And to find out that federal troops are coming into places, well, actually, Oregon was targeted because there's at the top, it's Democratic leadership. And Mm -hmm. Trump wanted to make a point that they weren't doing the correct thing. And that's why, you know, the young people in ongoing demonstrations are now in severe danger. I go back to the days of demonstrating in the 60s, and another thing that's happened that they're using on the the law and order side of things is facial recognition, and they're consuming a lot of video in the the halls of power, and they'll arrive uh, at at some organizer's house a week after the demonstration with seven patrol cars to arrest that person. And you imagine, I mean, if you're demonstrating... They're harvesting DNA are, now, too, MJ. Uh, I mean, we're, we're heading down the road that, that Hong Kong went down, in my opinion. The 10 principles of genocide, as they're laid out by the UN, we're way down the list. So that's part of being identified. It's on the list. I think that we're in serious trouble. We have to get rid of this guy. Got to be removed from office. He's twisted. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, for a narcissist, being a celebrity is the perfect profession. <laughs> but, yes. But, you know, Absolutely. when he was just screwing contractors and porn stars, it really didn't affect the rest of the world. Now that he's president, he got a serious problem. The uh, co-director of Operation Warp Speed, Donald Trump's PR campaign to uh, seem like he's doing something. Uh, is uh, actually what they're doing is they're overseeing the transfer of millions and millions and millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars from taxpayer coffers, your your dollars and mine, from the federal government to for-profit drug companies to develop vaccines. And the co-director of this is a person by the name of Monchef Slawi. I think I'm pronouncing that right. It's M-O-N-C-E-F-S-L-A-O-U-I. Monchef Slawi. And uh, Monchef is a a venture capital executive. Uh, Monchef is also the, uh, uh, let's see here. Uh, He is a partner in Medici, a venture capital firm that has invested in more than 50 biotech companies. He's chairman of the board of one of the companies that has received an investment from Medici, Vaxite, which develops vaccines. He's also the chairman of Galvani, a bioelectronics company owned by GSK and uh, GlaxoSmithKline and uh, Verily Life Sciences. And he continues to hold $10 million worth of stock in GlaxoSmithKline, which has teamed up with Sanofil to develop a coronavirus vaccine. Sanofil, by the way, the company that the Trump family is heavily invested in. They also make chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine. So here's the headline from the Times Union. The co-director of President Donald Trump's Operation Warp Speed can maintain extensive investments in the drug industry and avoid ethics disclosures while he continues to make decisions about government contracts, according to the Health and Human Services Inspector General. Why is that? Because he chose to only take $1 a year for his services. Because he's making, you know, the guy's a multi, multi, multi millionaire and he's making millions and millions of dollars on, you know, on the contracts that he's steering to his own companies. I mean, this is the Trump administration. Seema Verma, the head of uh, HHS, the administrator of the Health and Human Services, the, the, the person who oversees Medicare and Medicaid. She, uh, this is from, uh, from a piece in Daily Kos today by uh, Joan McCarter. Uh, she has, quote, used her position to steer millions of dollars in federal contracts to friends. She hired a Washington, D.C.-based uh, ex- communications person, Pam Steeman, to set up her media appearances with your tax dollars. Stevens created a publicity plan to put Verma in magazines like Glamour, get her invited to glitzy public events like the Kennedy Center Honors, and get her put on the power women lists. Right. It's just ordinary graft. Rachel in Savannah, Georgia. Hey, Rachel, what's on your mind today? Hey, um, I was just uh, wondering if you thought it was possible that Trump and Kemp had some contact, because I don't know 
if you saw um, Keisha Lance Bottoms last night saying that Trump had broken the law when he arrived in Atlanta and did not have his uh, he didn't have a mask on. Yeah, that was yesterday. Uh, and there's some speculation that that's why Kemp issued his executive order was because, um, you know, the local officials, specifically in Atlanta, were saying, well, he, you know, he, he just broke the law. And so Kemp just said, OK, I'll just do away with the law. I don't know if that was the you think that was the motive, Rachel? Well, it was just kind of peculiar timing because we have had a mask ordinance in Savannah for over a week now. And Atlanta is a little less than that, a little less than a week. So the timing is just odd that it, you know, comes right after she says that he broke the law, you know. So So maybe it's just uh, trying to own the libs here, just trying to stick it to a Democratic uh, mayor. Um, who, by the way, herself is now tested positive for coronavirus. This is going to be a real, this is a tough thing for her and her family. Um, but maybe he's just trying to stick it to her. So, so you, you think that that's an alternate explanation to um, my theory that this is what we're actually looking at as a program to reduce the population of black and Hispanic people in America? Well, that could be an underlying reason for sure. I mean, he yeah. he's awful. And we've got, you know, several more years of this guy. So I don't know, you know. Oh, we got several more months. We're very happy with Van Let's... Johnson. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, you mean your, your uh, mayor in, uh, yeah. The mayor, yeah. Um, I was really relieved yeah. when he put that ordinance in place because I'm scared to go anywhere. There's a lot of people that you know, have the mentality that nobody's going to tell them what to do and they're not going to wear a mask if they don't want to wear a mask. And so I was really relieved when he did that. It's very discouraging to have had Brian Kemp um, put that out last night. So, yeah, yeah. Remarkable stuff. Rachel, thank you. Thank you for the call. And thanks for the the information there about uh, Keisha Lance Bottoms. Uh, Nancy in New York City. Hey, Nancy, what's up? Um, um, I published in the 1980s, I don't have a copy of the book handy, Stefan Kuhl, a young German historian who was a graduate student at Johns Hopkins. I published this book as the acquiring editor, I think, in the 1980s. He documents Hitler got, in Mein Kampf, got his inspiration from American eugenicists. You're right. Isn't yeah. It isn't the other way around. It goes yep. back and forth. I wish they would promote the paperback. At least they didn't let it go out. <laughs> yeah. Out of um. No, the the American eugenics movement was a big deal. I mean, you know, it it, it rose to prominence. Exactly, but uh, in, you reported late... it the other way. You said that it started with Hitler. It didn't. Ah. This okay. was nothing Thank you for new about this kind of attitude. Yeah, no, this started in the United States, actually with the United States and, and Great Britain. Right. The, the, the most outspoken eugenics committee was actually the, the, the British one. But uh, these two mm-hmm. countries, the United States and Britain, through the 19, late 1910s through World War I yeah. and early into the 1920s, um, mm-hmm. actually rolled out aggressive eugenics programs. When I lived in Vermont, the, I've told the story before, but you know, the, our audience kind of, you know, people listen at different times, so tell it again very briefly. Um, oh. The Abenaki tribe in Vermont uh, had been, uh, back in the 19-teens and in the 1920s, as, Ameri- as a result of Vermont's eugenics program, they were all involuntarily sterilized. All these women, they, they were called, they, they, they referred to them as, quote, rough well, pelvic exams. Well, people with mental disorders in this country. Oh, yeah. yeah I mean, obviously, it started, you know, they were, they were going after that as well. But the Abenaki people were officially wiped out, according to the government. What happened, actually, was a lot of them went into hiding. They'd figured out what was going on. And so in the, in the early 2000s, I was living in the state when this happened. In the early 2000s, they petitioned the state Supreme Court for recognition as a tribe, and the state Supreme Court ruled, as the Abenaki were sitting in the courtroom, ruled that they didn't exist because the official record showed that they had been wiped out. I mean, oh, this, I, and yes, they, they went after mentally ill people. Uh, you could argue that the Tuskegee, Tuskegee experiment evolved out yes, of that exactly. mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, so uh, it's not so bizarre in this country to suggest this. Nancy, thank you for the call. Mike in Lomita, California. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? Adding to that list of horrors from people who've recovered from the COVID-19 is a 30-year-old who has to get kidney dialysis two or three times a week now because his kidneys are gone. Right, anyway, for the rest of his life, or hers. Yeah. 
are his. Oh, uh, well, yeah, I, I was just calling to talk about an incident in China where the American coronavirus infected a bunch of people. This is a super spreader event. This is a Chinese citizen who had visited the United States and returned to Hajiang province where they had had no new cases since mid-March. And then 9th of April, they had four new cases. And by April 21st, they had 71 new cases, all spread from the single source. They established this by genomic sequencing. Uh, CDC was involved in the investigation. And uh, this person had been quarantined after she returned from the United States, had had, uh, two negative antibody tests, and uh, still managed to spread to all these people and each one of them had been in contact with her in one way or another, except one person who lived in her apartment building and had used the elevator she had used, but at a different time. So if we open up all these schools and get everything back to status pre-pandemic, as Trump seems to want, I think it could really be even more disastrous than it looks right now. Yeah, I, I agree, and and it's going to be a disaster for our parent, for our for our, excuse me, for our teachers. But I think the um, the the biggest super spreading event that we're going to see is parents and grandparents. You're going to see you're going to see the relatives, the older relatives of these children. Uh, you know, the children are not going to die. I mean, a very small percentage of them get sick or die with with COVID, um, but they're going to bring it home, and their older siblings and their parents and their grandparents are going to end up in the hospital. We're, we're going to see an explosion nationwide if Trump can pull this thing And the out. teachers. Yeah. No, 74,000, as I recall, healthcare workers in the United States have become infected. Over 750 have died. When it gets into our schools, those numbers are going to look small. depth, deep dive into what Vietnam is doing. Screenings for COVID-19 amongst passengers at airports began on January 11th of this year. Now, keep in mind, we didn't have our first diagnosed case until January 20th. Neither did South Korea. They started screening at their airports on January 11th in Vietnam. That was the day after China announced their first death. And then also on January 11th, uh, Vietnam imposed a mandatory quarantine, a mandatory 14-day quarantine, which they enforced on every single person coming into the country. The health ministry convened a response strategy meeting with the World Health Organization and other partners on January 15th. And on January 15th, Vietnam closed their schools nationwide. They put in a place, they called it a national response plan. They put together a national steering committee on epidemic prevention. All of this was done before the end of the month of January. In February and March, they restricted flights even more vigorously and quarantined all international arrivals. In late March, the country suspended entry for all foreign international arrivals. So by the end of March, Vietnam was not letting anybody into the country who wasn't already there. They, they put into place local lockdowns. Communities had 20 days lockdowns, not 14. But it worked. They've killed the virus. They haven't had a new case in a week or two. Schools have been open since May, early May. The schools in Vietnam have been open for two months now. They still enforce strict mask usage, strict social distancing, And they're aggressively, you know, anybody who comes in from outside the country has to be quarantined and all this other stuff. But doing good. They've reopened their country, at least internally. And the International Monetary Fund says, quote, Vietnam will face milder economic impacts from COVID-19 compared to other countries in the region due to leaders' early and aggressive response. 
the way that they did it nationwide, contact tracing was an extensive initiative supported by 16 provincial centers for disease control, 700 district level centers for disease control. That would be like counties in the United States and over 11,000 community health centers. The public was also recruited. They had newspapers and television ads. Cases of confirmed cases were traced and tested up to three degrees of separation. So they traced the case. They traced that person's contact. They traced that person's contacts of contacts. And they traced the contacts of those contacted persons. Three degrees of separation. They've used the language of a country at war against a uh, virus to consolidate support. There have been mass texts to mobile phones telling people, wear your mask, street posters, press and social media posts, websites and hotlines, and then they rolled out a viral song telling people the wonders of wearing a mask. This all in Vietnam. Meanwhile, we've got pushing 140,000 dead Americans heading toward a quarter million by the election. Robert Redfield, according to ABC News, he told the Journal of the American Medical Association, that if everyone in America just wore a mask and social distanced, right? We don't need no stinking drugs. As I said earlier, Vietnam figured out it's a poor country. They figured out it was a hell of a lot easier to prevent COVID-19 than to treat it. And Robert Redfield said to the Journal of the American Medical Association, Quote, the face coverings are, quote, the most powerful weapon we have, along with being smart about social distancing. Quote, if we all rigorously did this, we really could bring this outbreak back to where it needs to be. He says, I think if we can get everybody to wear a mask right now, I really do think that over the next four to six, eight weeks, we can bring this epidemic under control. And then he went on to say the fall and winter of 2020 and 2021 are going to be probably one of the most difficult times we've experienced in American public health. Why? Because the Trump administration wouldn't do anything. Why wouldn't the Trump administration do anything? That's a damn good question. Is this a Republican eugenics program? Is it because they read all those articles? Is it because they're just crazy? Two days ago, I shared with you a study from one of the psychology journals that People with basically low IQs, they called it low cognitive ability, were more likely to refuse to wear a mask. Now one comes out, this was just published yesterday in the journal Social Psychology and Personality Science. The headline uh, from Eric Dolan's piece over at SciPost.org, Psychopathic Traits Linked to Non-Compliance with Social Distancing Guidelines and Mask Wearing Amidst the Coronavirus Pandemic. This was a survey of 502 U.S. adults done between March 20th and March 23rd. They asked them how often they complied with social distancing and mask wearing, and then they asked them a battery of personality tests. And what they found was that people who scored higher on the psychopathic subtraits of meanness and disinhibition tended to show less interest in social distancing and hygiene, and they were more likely to touch or sneeze high-use surfaces in public. Amazing. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. So are these guys psychopaths, or do they have a eugenics plan, or are they psychopaths with a eugenics plan? What the hell is going on, and how do we deal with this? I, uh, I found this study over at uh, SciPost, a psychology website, and the headline was Lower Cognit- Cognitive Ability Linked to Noncompliance with Social Distancing Guidelines During the, pan- the Coronavirus Pandemic. And... So I retweeted it. In fact, I just retweeted it uh, just a moment ago so that you can easily find it at the top of my Twitter feed. And I wrote at the top for those people who watch Fox News or who really, you know, don't don't do science well. uh, Translation from science speak. Quote, this is the headline in plain English. Studies show that mostly it's only stupid people who refuse to wear masks and socially distance. End quote. Sure enough. Sure enough. Now, sadly, I mean, this is, you don't want to speak ill of the dead. Well, he's not dead yet. A Florida official, this is Paul Waldron is his name. He's the St. John's County Commissioner in the area around Jacksonville. Uh, He was one of three St. John's County Commissioners who voted no on a resolution requiring just the employees of the county to wear face masks. Uh, You know, so when you go in to get a permit to put a septic tank in or build a new fence in your backyard or whatever it may be, 
you know, the person sitting there talking to you would have a mask on. He voted against that. Why? Because freedom. Well, Paul Waldron is now in the hospital. His daughter is uh, posting on Facebook that uh, he went into septic shock and, quote, many of his organs are struggling. He is currently, she writes, in the most critical of conditions. Please keep your family safe and please pray for mine. So if you're inclined, you want to say a prayer for Paul Waldron, assuming he's still alive. This is just tragic. And Trump is doubling down on it right now on television and on Twitter. And the Republican Party's got people around him who are tweeting cuts of Anthony Fauci from back in February saying, well, it's not so bad. And then they cut off the part where he continues and says, but if we start seeing these infections bubble up, we're going to have to do something. They cut that off. I mean, it's just breathtaking. So over at Quora.com, and I just retweeted this also so that you can easily follow this if you want to follow it on Twitter. My Twitter handle is Tom, T-H-O-M underscore Hartman with two N's. Franklin Vo is, uh, he labels himself a professional writer, which I'm guessing he probably is because this is very well written. The question was, how does a disease with a 1% mortality rate shut down the United States? It's a question that's regularly being asked on Fox News. Oh, speaking of Fox News, by the way, lower cognitive ability linked to non-compliance with social distancing guidelines during the pandemic. Translated into studies show it's mostly only stupid people who refuse to wear masks and socially distance. That article got the Fox News app on my, on my iPhone, and you know I check it every day to see how Fox is spinning things. And they actually had this article up, but they didn't rewrite the headline. So most people reading it probably have no idea what it says because it's such obtuse, lower cognitive ability linked to noncompliance. Right. What the hell does that mean? I don't know. Okay. So anyhow, one of the questions that they're asking over at Fox and all the Fox hosts promoting and saying and whatever is that, hey, only 1% of people who get this die. What's the big deal? Well, first of all, if you knew before the pandemic, there were typically at any given moment in the United States, 10,000 airplanes in the sky. Whether it's the United States or the world, you can Google it. If you knew that out of that 10,000 airplanes today, a hundred of them were going to fall out of the sky, which is 1%. If every single day there were a hundred airplane crashes where everybody on the plane died. Every single day. Not just one crash yesterday, a hundred crashes yesterday. And a hundred crashes the day before that. And a hundred crashes the day before that. And all those people died. That's one percent. Would you ever get on an airplane again? But nonetheless, over on Fox News, they're saying, hey, it's only a 1% mortality rate. Why are we all bent out of shape about this? Well, here's the reason, as Franklin Vo writes. For every one person who dies, and, and by the way, he goes through and he documents all of his sources for this at the end of the thread, because the thread is kind of blown up. It's gotten a lot of publicity. He says, for every one person who dies... 19 require hospitalization, 19 more of them. 18 will have permanent heart damage for the rest of their lives. 10 will have permanent lung damage for the rest of their lives. Three will have strokes that will affect them the rest of their lives. Two will have a neurological damage, will have neurological damage that leads to chronic weakness and loss of coordination. Two will have neurological damage that leads to loss of cognitive function. So that 100 airplanes out of the 10,000 that are in the sky, that 100 airplanes that are crashing every day, those are the people who die. But there's 200 airplanes where they're not crashing, they're just losing their oxygen at altitude and everybody on the plane gets dementia. And another 200 airplanes where everybody on the plane gets neurological damage. And then there would be 300 airplanes where everybody has a stroke and 1,000 airplanes where everybody has permanent lung damage and 1,800 airplanes where everybody has heart damage for the rest of their lives. Would you get it on an airplane? 
Once you do the math, what you find is that 1% of the U.S. population, that's 3.2 million people dead, but that's 62 million people hospitalized, 59 million people with permanent heart damage, 32 million people with permanent lung damage, 9.8 million people with strokes, 6.5 million people with muscle weakness, 6.5 million people with dementia, loss of cognitive function. It's only 1% dead. It's no big deal. Send your kids back to school. You can put the teachers in that milieu. If you were a teacher, would you go back and teach? Do you think teachers are going to show up? If you were working in, in, in an environment where you come into contact with us, we had a caller in the last hour who said that she was in a store and, and the, the clerk who was checking her out said, boy, I'll sure be glad when the election's over and we can go back to normal. And she was like, what? And, uh, you know, oh, yeah, this whole COVID thing, this is just to hurt Trump. It's going to go away when the election's over. She's like, you believe that? Yeah, of course. I get my information from Fox News and Sean Hannity and Michael Savage and Mark Levin. I, I, you know, I get my information from Breitbart. I mean, this is what's happened. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 